I'm Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we are taking a look at the issue of God and the brain and how that affects belief. We are with Dr. Kelly James Clark, who is the Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at Ibn Haldun University in Istanbul, Turkey. Dr. Clark, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Dennis. Glad to be here. All righty. So if we could just get um, give the audience an idea of where you're coming from in your church tradition, your background, your theology, maybe some changes that have happened over the years. I grew up uh, in a pretty liberal Methodist church. I'd say my parents weren't overly committed. I got more committed through, uh, way more committed through uh, young life and high school. Uh, and uh, only because of friends, I attended Reformed, Reformed Church in America, uh, church when I was in graduate school, and I would uh, would have called myself clearly uh, five point Calvinist Reformed at the time. Um, I thought all Catholics were going to hell. Uh, that's how Calvinistic I was. I was a very serious Reformation Catholic or a, a Protestant all the way through college. Then I went to the University of Notre Dame, and I thought maybe some of these Catholics weren't so bad. And um, uh, I, I, I didn't become a Catholic, um, but I uh, began to expand uh, my understanding of divine grace. And um, I, um, I suppose I'd call myself now because I think— um, the term Christian has a certain connotation in the United States uh, that's associated with some things I, I I don't myself identify with, but I do really like Jesus. So now I sort of consider myself a follower of Jesus. I'd rather call myself that. Uh, I wrote a book called Written to be Heard with a um, someone that does Bible as literature, and we looked at the Gospels of Jesus, and I came away with a really um, renewed and profound understanding of Jesus and commitment to Jesus through actually reading the Bible, uh, probably partly in the way it was supposed to be read. So um, so I like to identify with Jesus and not so much with Christianity or the church as it's come to be understood in this day and age. So are there any particular theological traditions that you most align with now? N- not really. I consider myself pretty ecumenical. I I think that um, uh, I think that the Bible itself is not that much concerned with um, theological distinctions which divide Christians, and I think the Bible is really concerned with uniting Christians. So I I I like to not identify. I like to be part of the uniting Christian project, not the dividing Christian project. And once. Once you say you're this, it means you're not that, and this is good and that is bad. Anyway, I, I, uh, I can appreciate. I have good friends who are Roman Catholics. I'm not one myself, but I can I can appreciate why they are, um, and um, and part to me part of understanding uh, what it means to be loving in this day and age is to understand that most people aren't that different from most of us and are doing their best to try to figure out what reality is like. And it's hard to figure out what reality is like. And so we make, some people make mistakes. I think they make mistakes. I make mistakes and I need to treat other people as, um, with a kind of intellectual humility, uh, and theological humility. Uh, so, so I, I don't like, I don't read theology that much anymore. Uh, I used to read it a lot. I used to be really precisely defined, and I used to have a real sharp sense of who's in and who's out. Hmm. And um, and I I think Christians shouldn't be that attentive to the boundaries. Um, we should be more attentive to um, the thing at the middle that holds us together, which was God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's what we should be on and not not focusing on the boundaries. We should focus on okay. the I, Okay. I, okay, gotcha. Um, so I forgot to mention in the beginning your book, uh, God and the Brain and the rela- uh, 
Got in the Brain, The Rationality of Belief. So it was published in 2019. Uh, follow the link below. It is available. So um, great book. I highly recommend it. So you wrote that book for what purpose? What were you trying to get at? I I wrote it because um, I guess there are two, two reasons. One, I've been really interested in uh, Christianity and evolution for – uh, since I was an undergrad, and how how that how that can fit in, how um, how Christians should think of that. What's um, and I was a very serious anti-evolutionist as a student. Um, I've come not to be so, and I've written books in defense of it. Um, but how you can be a Christian and embrace it, and um, but along the way, I I would run into work by Richard Dawkins. And uh, he became uh, a sort of arch nemesis in my writing. So lots of times I would have to sort of try to untangle some some things he would say uh, about science from what he would say about atheism. Like he couldn't, he can't separate those two. And he thinks science supports atheism. So I've, I've had a long interest in uh, Christianity and evolution, Christianity and science, and in, kind of in particular in the ways in which Atheists like Richard Dawkins think that science and atheism are really tightly intertwined. And um, so I've long wanted, uh, tried to take that apart. I have a a book uh, called Religion and the Sciences of Origins. And that's where mm. I think people find conflicts is where science talks about origins. So I talk about uh, the origins of the universe, Big Bang, the Big Bang. So I talk about the origin of the universe. Is that something that uh, disproves God's existence? I look at the origins of the species. So I have a couple chapters on uh, on um, evolution. I look at the origins of modern science. So it's a it's a more historical chapter, but I note how much of early modern science was rooted in Christian belief and Christians exploring the cosmos and uh, assumptions that they made. Um, and, and you know, some people paint the picture that early science was, uh, you know, the church condemning Galileo to death, which isn't true. And so you have to untangle some of those myths and show how uh, religion and science, especially Christianity and science, which is my interest, how they how they might go together. And I was just at the time ex- beginning to explore the origins of of um, belief in God, what science has to say about that. And this is pretty pressing, I think it's, and and so um, what, there's two things that got me interested. One is Dawkins wrote a book called The God Delusion, in which he thinks he shows that God is a delusion or a collective illusion or, but there's no reality to it. And that there's something in, in cognitive science that proves that God is a delusion. And the person he quotes in support of cognitive science, the psychologist he he quotes is Justin Barrett. And Justin Barrett is my former student at Calvin College. Justin Barrett is a Christian <laughs> psychologist. He picked the wrong guy. He had picked the wrong guy. Uh, it didn't. It doesn't matter. Like <laughs> Dawkins, you can't believe how uh, massive an influence Dawkins has around the world on the demise of unbelief. Or sorry, the demise of belief or the rise of mm-hmm. unbelief. I do a lot in Muslim majority countries. Young Muslims are leaving Islam because of Dawkins. The uh, it, he has a massive outside size influence. Right. So and, you had a good reason to write the book. Yeah, and it's based on a bad argument. Let's just say that I think he makes a mistake. Okay, he makes big mistakes, and yeah. we'll get into more detail on that yeah. later. So um, there's a few terms you could use um, that you use um, throughout a lot of your books. So if you could define those, they are theory of mind, agency detection device, cognitive cognitive science, and cognitive science of religion. So yeah. if you could start with those, theory of mind. Um, let me start with cognitive science. Um, cognitive science is the view that um, – or is the study of how our brains or minds, I don't make a big distinction here, the, whether they have an immaterial mind or whatever, it's not, uh, it's not important to this, but we do seem to be, human beings 
do seem to be active cognizers of our experience. And so cognitive science looks at how we take various inputs, like we smell things or taste things or see things, and then how we output beliefs or practices. So sometimes it's what we do, not just what we believe. And um, so it looks at how the mind works. And uh, for a long time, it would look at things like um, it looked at things like vision. How does how does vision work? How do, how does our mind shape uh, what we see? We don't take in every ray of light, for example. We output beliefs, fairly reliable beliefs about things that are fairly large and and relatively close to us. We can't see atoms, for example. We can't see distant galaxies. We only see a certain little bit, um, and we're we're active perceivers. So sometimes. Uh, this has happened to me anyway, I, I'm out walking and I see a long ways away, I see somebody, I say, hey, uh, Jackie, and I wave and yell out loud, Jackie doesn't do anything. We keep walking and we get closer and closer and closer. And, and we, when we get close, I see it's not Jackie. But here's what our, our brains do. That person may have worn clothes similar to Jackie's. That person may have had a face roughly the same shape. That person may be roughly the same height. And what our brains do is they fill in the face. Our brains fill that in. They're active. And and I saw Jackie. The, my mental image was the image of Jackie. That's why I waved. And then when they got closer, of course, the mental image cha- changed because I'm better at seeing people up close than way far away. Right. Um, at any rate, our minds are active in shaping uh, the inputs that come in, and they shape our beliefs and they shape our our practices. That's cognitive science. Okay. Uh, cognitive science again initially was like with hearing, seeing, uh, tasting, our five senses, but in the seventies and eighties, it began to look at cult at, at how our minds shape what we used to call culture. And um, this isn't an anti-culture view. It's just that in addition to culture, our minds shape us in various ways with respect to, for example, morality or music, or I I just was reading a study today. What, why, what, what are the origins of music in humanity? And uh, some evolutionary psychologists think the best explanation is that they bound us together in groups. Um, like we knew the same songs, we sang them together, we we danced together. And uh, in our small group of maybe 30 to 50 people, um, that made us more cooperative with one another. Uh, but it also made us bolder in um, when we're protecting ourselves from outgroup. So what is the origin of music? It's a, it's a cultural practice, which probably it taps into something in our minds, a really powerful something. Well, cognitive science of religion, I think the first great book uh, was Stuart Guthrie. He wrote a book called Faces in the Clouds, and he's looking at the cognitive origins of religious belief. Um, How do our minds take an inputs and output religious belief? And um, there were many... um, after Stuart, I think he started a, a discipline, Cognitive Science of Religion. I think it took off, really took off around 2000. Um, and my student, Justin Barrett, asked me to give a, a talk at Oxford on uh, where he was uh, had a position on my views in religious epistemology, like how we come to know God, my views on those in the Cognitive Science of Religion. What, what, what are they saying that might be similar? Um, so that's the cognitive science of religion. And then there are two main things with respect to religious belief that everyone agrees on in the cognitive science of religion. And everyone says human beings have an agency detecting device. And so you can't see it right here, but I have a bird feeder on my window and I watch birds come in. If a bird comes in, I'm going to go just like that. Like human beings are really sensitive to certain sorts of stimulations um, probably because early human beings were really hungry 
and those that could detect agency, um, things that could act, things that could act on their own, like animals. Animals are agents, but plants are not agents. So if you could separate uh, an animal from a plant, you'd probably be a more successful uh, hunter-gatherer than somebody who couldn't. So early human beings that were really good at agency detecting, uh, the wind is not an agent. Uh, so if you're woken up at night uh, by the wind, you might you might think there's an agent out there. You might think there's an enemy or a lion or something. So you're in, we instantly think in terms of agents. Uh, and then not only do we think in terms of agents, then we ascribe purpose to the, the agents. So uh, if we think it's a lion, then we'll want to know, is the lion hungry? Is the lion, uh, does he just want to get, is he afraid? Just wants to walk away? Uh, is the, um, if it's an enemy, is the enemy coming to steal our food or... Uh, a woman or a child, a slave, uh, or they just walking through the area hunting on their own. They came here by accident. We instantly ascribe purpose to an agent. Um, and those are both very powerful cognitive mechanisms. For example, just give an example I, I give in the book. Suppose you're out walking in the woods at night. And this happened to me once. I heard a sound over at the left of me and I went, I looked quickly, that's my agency detecting device, and I saw a face, and it scared me because I thought there isn't supposed to be a person here. Um, this, is, this isn't right somehow. And I, so I walked up, and what it was when I got close, it, it was dusk, it was dark, but when I got close, I saw two concentric pieces of uh, uh, on a on the side of a tree where branches had fallen off. And from a distance, they looked like eyeballs. And it turns mm. out human beings only need to see two fairly concentric eyeballs. They can, they don't have to be right next to each other. They don't have to be exactly <laughs> concentric, but uh, if human beings see eyeballs, we see agents. And, um, and we instantly attribute agency. And even though I was wrong, it took a second for me to calm my heart down uh, and tell myself that, that I had misperceived an agent and misattributed uh, an intention or purpose to that agent. So that was the agency detecting device and the theory of mind. And ordinarily it just works like this. You go to a mall, you see somebody go by and you say, and you, and, and you watch them and you say, Oh, I'd never get a tattoo like that. And you, you've made some judgment about the kind of person they are. That's what we usually do. <laughs> or if their kid's crying, you'd say, oh, I'd never, my kid would never get away with that, not in public. Of course, all, all of us who have kids or have had kids know that that's not true. But uh, <laughs> when you're in your young and judgmental stage, you're you're attributing bad mother to that person. You're attributing some sort of intention. And we're, we're so fast at it. We can, be, we can be at a mall with people going by like this, and we right. can see someone, agent, detecting device, and then we can attribute uh, some sort of intention to them, just like this, based on what they're wearing, how they talk, who they're talking to. That's the agency okay. detected advice and theory of mind. Okay, so those are relevant for what we're talking about. Uh, the rest of the talk. So materialist atheists um, make a case um, that God, the belief in God is irrational and that yeah. it's, it can be shown that these experiences of God or of heaven can be induced and based on that um, realization, they they want to throw out the whole thing, but you do not agree with them. So how would you sum up their argument and how do you counter it? Yeah. So some of the studies on inducing religious belief, like uh, I can't remember his name. There's a famous neuroscientist who, has, who developed what's called a God helmet, and he claimed to have induced uh, belief in God or experiences of God in people who put this helmet on their head with a whole bunch of electrodes. And then they'd be in a room that was completely dark and they, they'd just completely relax. And then they would experience not usually God, actually, they would experience uh, if they did something like oneness with the cosmos or something. Uh, no one's ever been able to replicate that experience. So, but 
it's not inconceivable that someone can. Like, we have brains, and our our thoughts about God are mediated through our brains. My thought about you is mediated through my brains. So um, give neuroscience enough time, I think they're going to be able to create really visually, uh, or not visually, but um, it's in our minds the that I have, that I'm having an experience of you. Let's put it that way. You'll be able to I'm induce to involve my right induce stuff. mystical experiences that people yeah. would consider totally time, real. Uh, I think they'll figure it out. Um, they can't do it right now, but so even if they do figure it out, I don't think they'll have shown that, um, that God doesn't exist anymore. If they figure out how to create an image of you in my mind, they'll have shown that you don't exist. So um, it's just a mistake. Um, it's just a logical that, fallacy. Yeah. Yeah, it's a genetic fallacy, and the the oh, and then the big thing I think is is this. Uh, it's pretty clear that that early humans um, likely acquired belief in God through agency detecting device and theory of mind, and they made a lot of mistakes. So that's part of the story. Our agency detecting device, we think it detects an agent, and and we're wrong, and then we attrib- and then we think it that something like like. You know, Stuart uh, Guthrie thinks faces in the cloud. You see a cloud, you think it's, you see a face, you think it's a person, you think the cloud has intentions, and then you try to figure those out so you can get the cloud to rain rain for you when you need it. Um, but it doesn't have intentions, it's not an agent, it's not responsive to, you know, our prayers and incantations. So, uh, so agency detecting device and theory of mind make mistakes. So that's another argument that they have. But all of our cognitive faculties make mistakes. Um, making a mistake doesn't mean that people aren't, in some circumstances, cognitively connected to God. And they may have had a religious experience they, themselves. They may have had one. They may not have had one themselves. Maybe maybe your parents had one and they told you. If they did have an experience of God and they told you, well, it's perfectly reasonable to believe what other people tell us. So uh, anyway, I look at all the ways that someone could be connect, connected with God, even if sometimes people are making mistakes. Um, the fact that we make mistakes with our cognitive faculties is it—it's no big revelation. Um, okay, we do all and, the time. and what does it mean that uh, cognitive cognitive science of religion researches have determined that religion is natural? What does that even mean? It just means that uh, that people under normal circumstances without much – so the natural part is without much cultural influence. So it's natural versus cultural here. So it's one thing like if you, if you grew up in Finland, which is 95 percent atheist, uh, it's very likely you'll be an atheist um, because your culture is telling you what, what to believe. If you grow up in West Michigan, uh, it's probably 85% likely you'll be a Christian. And and what's moving people in both those cases is very likely culture. But early human beings didn't have that sort of cultural artifice sort of moving people. Uh, independent of that, this is the natural part. People will uh, and normally will naturally and normally acquire religious beliefs. It's kind of... They're not built into us exactly, but the dispositions that move people to to God are built into us. Um, so we like we have a we have a here's another way to look at it. It's natural for us to learn languages. Um, we're we have cognitive mechanisms that incline us to um, to understand um, and speak um, languages. And it's easy for people. It's natural. Which languages we speak, culture plays a huge role in which languages we speak. But um, but that we have the ability to learn languages is totally independent of culture. Um, and uh, But which we learn isn't independent of culture. And so re- religion is kind of like our, our language instinct. We have something like a religion instinct that moves us to belief in God. Okay. And if there is a God... Maybe you'd expect him to create us with an instinct that would move us to God, our greatest good. So 
I don't use my argument to say that there is a God, that this proves God, but but I do try to show that nothing an atheist says disproves God. Right, um, right. Okay, and then rationality. What is rationality? How do you understand it? And how is our friend Thomas Reed tied in? Yeah. Uh, Thomas Reed uh, is a Scottish, 18th century Scottish philosopher. And he explores a lot of what cognitive science would explore 200 years later. Um, how our minds actually work and what our cognitive mechanisms actually are. Um, instead of the way philosophers had gone about thinking about how people know things, they would look at how they thought the mind should work. And instead, he looks like, what's really going on? Hmm. So I mentioned that it's perfectly reasonable to accept what other people tell us. Imagine going to school and and thinking that it's not reasonable for you to believe what other people tell you. Almost everything you learn in school is based on what other people tell you. You read it in a book. Your teacher says it. The teacher says there's a country in South America named Uruguay. Well, I'm assuming you haven't been to South America and none of your classmates had been to South America, but you believe there was a country named Uruguay. And you said, oh, it's right there on that map. Everything about that is something that you believe based on testimony. Uh, you're out walking, and yes, and you say, hey, what time is it? And someone says, oh, it's about 1230, and then you believe it's about 1230. A lot of what we believe is based on what other people tell us. Um, and uh, a lot of what we believe is based on, uh, well, here's the bottom line. It's based on things we can't prove. We we have a certain sort of experiential input, and then we we have an output. So I, I can't prove that you have a mind. Like I can't prove that you have thoughts, feelings, and desires, things that we associate with mind. But I instantly believe that you do. Um, so I'm looking at you and I think, oh, you're bored. Like maybe you're not. I'm just <laughs> throwing this out. But I but we look at people, we see their face, and we we have an instant belief about their interior mental life to which we have no access. I cannot see inside your mind, but we have a cognitive faculty. Reed didn't call it theory of mind. We call it, some people call it theory of mind today, but uh, but it produces belief in the thoughts, feelings, and desires of other people. And the interesting thing is cognitive science has shown that it's, uh, in people who are neurotypical, it's pretty reliable. And it's pretty reliable across cultures. So you can look at people and see if they're happy, if they're sad, if they're right. uh, angry, if they're afraid, if they're embarrassed, if they're, I, I think there are close to 40 um, emotions that you can read in people's faces. Um, but you're not reading the thought, you're just instantly forming a belief. Anyway, Reed looks at how how many cognitive mechanisms we have where we have input and then we that they produce a belief output really quickly and immediately. And I argue that belief in God is like that for most of us, most of the time. We either Are, believe because someone told us, um, or uh, you, just, you, you just find yourself out there looking around on a mountain on a starry night and thinking, God created all this. And it's not because you went through some big, long argument um, you just find yourself with that belief. It happens like that. We have cognitive mechanisms that produce belief in God under certain circumstances. Maybe it's when you feel guilty that you've done something wrong and need to be forgiven. Or um, the list of the kinds of right. circumstances under which people who didn't believe come to belief, I think are I think it's very seldom an argument and uh, more often an occasion that instantly produces belief in God. All right. Well, that ties into uh, what you write about resisting the demand for evidence. Uh, I mean, of course, these atheists, they're talking a lot about proof and science, and but you, you're insisting that we shouldn't demand evidence for everything. Yeah. I don't think we – I don't think in order to be rational, I don't think that you need to have good reasons for your belief. I don't think rationality means – 
having good reasons for all of your beliefs because uh, because most of our beliefs are produced uh, they're occasioned but they're not produced based on reasons usually I mean you might look at it this way it, you believe maybe you believe E equals MC squared uh, from Einstein and uh, well, you barely understand it or at least I do barely understand E equals MC squared. I I believe it, and I think I kind of understand it, that energy and matter are uh, can turn into one another under certain circumstances in accord with this law. But I didn't do any experiments that proved that E equals MC squared. I don't have any evidence for it. I just read it in a book. And somebody told me about it, and then somebody told me some experiment somewhere, and anyway, I, I just believed it. So, um, the so it, it, just to put it in terms of religious belief, atheists often say that in order for a religious believer to be rational, you have to meet a certain demand for evidence. You have to you have to have good evidence for your belief, like some really good argument for the existence of God. And they say, but all the arguments are bad, so no one has any good reasons. And and what I do is undermine the assumption that to be rational, you have to have a good reason. I, I just don't think that fits the human condition. Uh, right. I mean, that's know. for us as individuals. Not all of us can study the evidence for um, the theory of relativity or study all the evidence for, say, the resurrection of Jesus. But hopefully, if we're going to, say, believe in the resurrection year after year for decades at some point, we would at least want to be familiar with that no like, people like Gary Habermas and N.T. Wright have done some real profound research that shows that there is real evidence. So don't we have to be in touch with the evidence at some point? I think that uh, no. So I don't think that there's not evidence or that it can't be found or that someone couldn't find it. I don't mean to say that at all. I just mean to say that um, in order to be rational – to believe that there's a resurrection is for some is for there some people to have seen the risen Jesus and for them to tell somebody. And if they told somebody and it's true, they were in contact with the risen Jesus and it's true, that's I that's and then you you believe like that, you're not believing um because someone gave you some great evidence for it. You're believing because somebody told someone that you trust okay. told. And that can go on that can go on for two thousand years. Someone else might also have evidence for it, just as there might also be evidence. So you can be rational in other ways, too. You can be rational believing on the basis of evidence. But I'm just saying your grandmother never heard of Gary Habermas. She never heard of any of these reasons. And if she believed because somebody told her, and that goes back a long ways, even all the the way, maybe it's just God told her in the gospel. Uh, If God told her and she trusted God, then then there's nothing wrong with her belief. She doesn't need to okay. uh, Gary Habermas or anybody that has evidence for the resurrection. I All I'm saying is people don't need it. They could have it. I think it's actually good to have in some sense because because we want, all of us really want good evidence for our beliefs, but, um, but I think by and large we need to relax. Um, usually we think other people are irrational. Usually we think we have good evidence, other people don't. Right. But my point is, none of us is good at acquiring evidence for hardly any of our beliefs. We just haven't been built that way, where our minds are constructed to believe things almost immediately based on very little um, sensory input, I guess is how I would say it. Okay. So uh, uh, you wrote a quote, uh, still the vast majority of beliefs that we hold aren't acquired by reasoning to them, but are produced immediately and non-inferentially by our various cognitive dispositions. So that's what you've been saying. Yeah. But um, if you can talk about the non-inferentially, uh, inference versus intuition, how do those two work together? Or? So not so I'm talking to inferences when you believe something based on an argument or you believe – um, you believe P because you believe Q and R and you think Q and R support P. So you believe P because you believe Q and R. 
Um, so that's an inference, like you're you're believing on the basis of some some other propositions. Um, that's an inferential belief. And uh, my the big point I would like to make is that we have hardly any inferential beliefs. That almost all of our beliefs are immediate. I prefer immediate to intuitive. Some psychologists mm. are more inclined to use the word intuitive. Um, it has a special under uh, meaning for philosophers, so I don't use it with philosophers. Okay. I mean immediate that's produced. We have an experience. We have a belief. And we don't believe it on the basis of other propositions usually. And I think 99.9% of, of things we believe are immediate. We have an experience. We have a belief. I look outside. I see a tree. I believe there's a tree. Uh, there's a bird in my bird feeder. I see the bird feeder. I believe that there's a bird feeder. I I move my hand on my phone. I say, I, I call, call my attention to it. I think this feels smooth. And I... I don't infer it. I don't have a big argument for it. I just find myself believing various things. And oftentimes, by the way, we act with without believing things. Um, if you're driving a car, um, sometimes you believe and self-consciously say to yourself, uh, it's all free and clear. I can make the left-hand turn. Other times you just make the left-hand turn um, without believing you're, uh, you don't tell yourself to breathe, for example. There's right. all sorts of things that we do, all sorts of ways that we um, do things without even having belief attached to them. Okay, and uh, we hinted at this before, but that part of, uh, you call it the God faculty, um, so how does the God faculty tie into your research on God and the brain? And if you could talk about um, uh, Alvin Plantica and Nicholas Wal Waltersdorf, how they're related to all yeah. that. Uh, Alvin Plantinga and Nicholas Waltersdorf are two um, reformed epistemologists, like reformed in the sense of uh, – not having been bad ones and became good ones, not that sort of reform, but in the sense of being followers of John Calvin and the kind of broadly reformed tradition. They both, they were colleagues at Calvin College. Um, I sort of replaced Nick uh, when I came to Calvin. I was hoping he would be here when I came and he had, he left a month before I got here and took up a chair at Yale University. And uh, Alvin Plantinga had a chair at at Notre Dame, and he was he was at Notre Dame when I was there. He was my dissertation director, and Al argued that um, that we have we have within us um, a sensus divinitatis, a sense of the divine that produces God immediately in a wide variety of circumstances, and so um, belief in God in in most. Most people, most of the time, is not produced by inference. It's not based on an argument. It's just that uh, it's produced in God by this um, kind of spiritual faculty that's built into everybody. Everyone has it. Um, and I defended the census divinitatis in some of my early writings, um, and I, I began to think when I studied the cognitive science of religion that that it's not quite right. That's not quite the way. Well, let's put it this way. The way Alvin Plantinga understands it isn't quite right. That the cognitive faculty we have isn't one that produces. Plantinga thought it produced belief in God, like an omnipotent, omniscient, perfectly good being. And John yeah. Calvin, who used the term he didn't call it the census dei. It's not the sense of God. It's not the sense of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's not the sense that we have. He used census divinitatis, that we have a broad sense that reality has a divine part of it, that there's a kind of uh, amorphous spiritual authority over everything, just enough for someone to know that what they're doing is right is wrong in some circumstances. So that's what Paul is talking about in Romans 1. Yeah, it's like, yeah, and he based it on Romans 1. That's where he based it. And it's just enough for people to, in, in his case, for people to be sort of rightly guilty before the 
ultimate standard of goodness. But it's not uh, uh, it's not Yahweh that Calvin's talking about. And you get the feeling when you read Alvin Plantinga that it's pretty darn close to Yahweh that that he's talking hmm. about. And we don't have a cognitive faculty like that. And it looks pretty clear that we don't have a cognitive faculty that's dedicated to belief in God. And on this, I think Calvin and Plantinga were, are both wrong. That We have these ordinary, normal, natural cognitive faculties, but they're the agency detecting device and the theory of mind. They're not especially aimed at God. And uh, Calvin and uh, Plantinga thought that we had one that was especially aimed at God, that the only product of its belief was God. Okay. All right. And uh, naturalism is something you talk about a lot. So what is naturalism? Uh, what does it have to do with God and the brain? And then also talk about uh, the relationship of naturalism to evolution, which I think is especially significant. Yeah. Okay, this is the hardest topic of everything here today. So okay, <laughs> naturalism is roughly the belief that... Um, well, usually you define it by what it's not. Naturalism doesn't believe in supernature. It doesn't believe that there's anything beyond our natural world, that all there is is uh, that there's no God. There's no, there are no spirits. There's no afterlife. There's just this life. Everything is this world and restricted to this world. Um, and so um, it's a philosophy that's, I, I roughly, I think it's an, it's just anti-God and defines itself by the kind of spiritual things that typically come with God, a kind of objective morality rooted in God's will. No, don't believe that. Uh, they believe in morality. What's a source of morality? Well, then naturalists have to explain without a God what makes something right and what makes something wrong. That's what naturalism is. It's a philosophy that tries to understand the world, broadly speaking, without, I, I guess, the consolation of, of God. Um, it's, it's problematic on its own because there are lots of entities that don't seem to conduce to naturalism. Um, and, uh, for example, numbers don't seem to be reducible to naturalism. They seem to be... Um, they seem to be true independent of the natural world. Uh, our experience of consciousness is not one that fits in very easily with natural. Like, so our thoughts, feelings, and desires, as far as we know, rocks don't have thoughts, feelings, and desires. Uh, atoms don't have thoughts, feelings, and desires. How, how could something emerge that has thoughts, feelings, and desires? That doesn't fit in very well with a with naturalism. Morality doesn't fit in very well with naturalism. These are things very hard to explain if you think there's no no God. If you think hmm. ultimate reality is spirit, like mind, then us having mind, thoughts, feelings, and desires isn't so hard to explain. We're, we're reflective of the ultimate stuff of reality. There's one creature that, that has it. If God is good uh, and the source of goodness, then it's not hard to explain morality. Um, so those are things that are hard to explain, but what um, what Plantinga argues in one of his favorite uh, famous arguments is that it's hard to, um, I'll just try to say it quickly, is that naturalism gives you no reason to believe that any of your cognitive faculties produce the truth. Hmm. And um, wh why does it do that? Because evolution selects for um, fitness advantage or adaptive advantage. It doesn't select for the truth. Uh, so we have, we have a lot of cognitive faculties that help us. We know this, that aren't truth conducive, that, but that help us uh, leave more, uh, uh, leave more offspring than other beliefs. So for example, most human beliefs, most humans believe that they're better than average. And well, it can't be true that all human beings are better than average. So we know that that's not a reliable cognitive uh, mechanism, but, but we believe it because, well, what, what's the explanation? Maybe because if we're more confident, we'll be more attractive to women 
and women, more women will want to have sex with us. And if they have sex with us, we'll leave uh, another, we're more likely to leave another, uh, someone like us with half our genes into the next generation. Um, a lot of our cognitive faculties that produce false beliefs are ones that have something to do with mating. So for example, men overestimate how much women want to have sex with them and women underestimate how much men want to stick around after they have babies. It's very costly evolutionarily for a woman to have a baby uh, in terms of fighting, feeding, and fleeing, having a baby to take care of is very costly evolutionarily. And so a lot of women's mating strategies, according to evolutionary psychology, are rooted around finding someone who can take care of you so women have a preference for high-status individuals who have the resources to stay around, but they also think more than they should that the person they have sex with is going to stay around. So women overestimate that, men overestimate their attractiveness to women, but men are probably more likely to spread their seed wisely if they're confident when they approach women. So anyway, there's all sorts of cognitive faculties we have around mating, and a lot of the beliefs they produce are not true. And uh, But evolution doesn't care. Itself, it's just trying to... Uh, to get your seed into the next generation. That's the only thing evolution cares about, if it cares about anything. Um, on the other hand, if there's a God who wants us to believe true things, say about him, about a flourishing life, about goodness and badness, about each other, if there's a God who wants us to believe true things, then um, uh, evolution, if there is a God, is one that you would um, you would expect that we would have um, uh, a number of cognitive faculties that are truth aimed that are aimed at getting us at the truth. And um, evolution, if naturalism is true, natural naturalism says there's no God, there's no purpose, there's there's just whatever forces happen. They don't care if humans exist. That's naturalism. So it's not aimed at truth. So you have no reason to think your cognitive faculties are true. So you have no reason to think that naturalism is true. So if naturalism and evolution are both true, then you have a reason to think naturalism is false. Um, and if um, a more conducive ground to thinking that we have reliable cognitive faculties is to think that we were created by God. Um, and God can use... I, I defend evolutionary processes. It's not that central to this argument. What's I think what's really cool is it takes a very central naturalist belief, evolution, and shows how when you put it together with uh, naturalism, then you have a reason not to believe naturalism. Right. It undermines naturalism. I, that's the most complicated thing I'm going to say all day. I hope people got the basic idea. But Okay. Well, that's really crucial for Christians, say, who grew up believing in traditional creationism and, uh, like you did, associated evolution with naturalism. That can be a great relief and a great yeah. apologetics tool also for people defending the faith. Yeah. I think it's a big mistake to, to make creationism essential to Christianity because yeah. if you grow up with that, and then you, you get to university and you start to understand evolution. Then you think, well, I can't believe in God anymore. I can't be a Christian anymore. Christianity essentially involves creationism. Uh, God created the world in seven days or 100,000 years or something like that. And I just think um, uh, that's not a good thing. Um, but a lot of people grow up thinking that. And you will see if you look at... Um, there's a survey done by the Barnabas, I think it was the Barnabas Institute a few years ago. And you'll see that one of the reasons young people are, if they leave the church, one of the reasons they're leaving is because they come to believe in evolution. And that means that they thought uh, yeah, it's very Christianity sad. is tied to creationism, evolution is tied to atheism. And so what I'm trying to do is is to unhook both of those things. Right. Okay, good. And you talk about, let me see, 
Oh, yeah. Um, atheists and agnostics having a higher IQ. So what does that have to do with this? I mean, are those studies yeah. reliable? What do they have to do with God in the brain? I wrote it, I wrote two chapters on atheism in, in my book, and I partly did it. I, I asked Justin Barrett, who is a leading cognitive scientist of religion and my former student, uh, I said, there's all this thing, all this stuff about religious believers and how they're deluded and irrational. Um, but pretty much what cognitive science shows is that all of our beliefs are produced by cognitive mechanisms. And I, so I said, why, why aren't people writing about atheism? Like, what are, what are the impulses to atheism? Um, and turns out that there were some studies uh, on atheism. And the interesting thing was they all tried to show that atheists were smarter than theists. And so the IQ studies um, were um, were some of the first studies, and they tried to show that um, that the higher, well, countries with higher IQs have uh, less religious belief. And what I look at is what those studies um, really show. Uh, let's just suppose it's true. Sometimes I just say, I don't know if it's true. Let's just suppose it's true that atheists have higher IQs. Does it show that they're smarter than religious believers? And so I looked at at a couple of things. One is it doesn't show that their smartness is the thing that moved them to unbelief. Um, the cognitive science of religion, one, um, one aspect of it, which we didn't talk about, is that some people believe in God for existential reasons. Like it gives them, if they're, like if you're poor and starving, it might give you hope that, you know, there's a next life where you won't be poor and starving. So some people believe um, um, because God satisfies some existential needs. Well, if that's, if that's the, it, cognitive science or religion doesn't say that everyone's going to die for Jesus. It just says that you're going to, across the world, you're going to find lots and lots of religious belief, lots of people believing in God, most people, the majority, that's what you would expect, because it's natural and normal. But it doesn't say religious belief is deep in everybody. So if you're one of those pe people, you don't know this, by the way, these are psychological mechanisms. So you, the person who, who believes just because God gives them hope for a better future, that person doesn't know that. But if a person like that uh, moves to a place with a higher socioeconomic status. Maybe they move from uh, battle-torn, I, I don't want to use that example, because Syria is pretty uh, highly educated. Maybe there's some really poverty-restricted part of Papua New Guinea where they move from there to the United States, and uh, it's easy to get all the food they need. It's easy to be in a warm shelter. You're not afraid for your neighbors coming to kill you or steal your food all the time. If you live under those circumstances, then your existential anxieties are gone. And when they go, religious belief will just evaporate. So what it shows is that what mediated the unbelief wasn't higher IQ. Oh, and you'll get a better, better education, so you'll have a higher IQ. This, this much we know 100%. That uh, at IQ... Go uh, sorry. As education goes up, IQ goes up. We we know it doesn't just measure some something that's just there in your brain. Uh, your brain also has to be educated. So we know when people are educated, their IQ goes up. So those people come, they go to school, they get educated, their IQ goes up. They stop believing in God, but it doesn't follow that their smartness or their attendance to arguments is the thing that moved them to unbelief. What moved them was getting three square meals a day and then belief in God just evaporated for them. So, so I look a lot of times as even if they're true, even if the claim is true, then in countries with higher IQs, there's more unbelief that that claim I think is true. What it shows is that people with, uh, with higher socioeconomic status, a lot of them are less likely to believe in God because they're, they were moved to believe in God by shallow reasons, not by, um, it wasn't, it, it didn't dig into them deep. Um, so I, that's my basic, I often will take a statistic and look if, look at 
whether or not it proves that atheists are smarter than theists. And um, and, and sometimes I'll even grant, okay, let's just say they are. Does it prove that atheists are ones that examine the evidence really clearly, and that's what moved their unbelief? And I think they don't show that at all. All right, and that ties into the question. Um, well, you spend some time with that. You only believe in God because of, or it could be, you are only an atheist because of. So yeah. you also talk about the the conformity bias in that. So there's a lot of reasons people believe in God or believe yeah. in atheism. I think we can find – so I'm not going to repeat these. I think some people's belief in God is shallow. I think it's produced by psychological mechanisms that aren't truth-conducive. So I, I don't mean to say that everybody who believes in God has uh, has a really great belief. Um, but, um, the atheist is also, there are also, um, pressures that move atheists to unbelief. For example, the higher you move up in education, the more likely you are to be taught by people who aren't believers. Uh, our universities are filled with unbelievers and, uh, conformity bias. Um, the more you move up, the, the more you want to be like your professor's. And uh, conform, and if you do, you don't even have to know it. But eventually, you just find yourself believing what your professors believe. You might go, mm -hmm. you might have gone to college as a very conservative Christian, but you're influenced by people that you want to be like, right. and you don't have to think um, that uh, I'm. I only I I want to be like them. Therefore, I'm going to give up my belief. It just happens to people. People just conform. We know this. There are studies where um, some of the early conformity bias studies, there'd be like a waiting room. Someone would go in for an experiment and there'd be a waiting room and there, someone would ring a bell and everyone would stand up. Well, the person that they're testing almost always just stood up. There's no reason they weren't asked or anything. Just everyone was standing up and the bell would ring. Everyone would sit down. Then they would sit down. Hmm. Uh, there are all sorts of really interesting uh, ASCH, I think is the guy, Ash conformity experiments. There are all sorts of interesting experiments that show how powerful conformity is in producing beliefs, how powerful prestige bias is. So if you think uh, there's somebody out there that um, that um, that has prestige, um if you want to be a scientist and you see such and such a scientist as an atheist, Richard Dawkins, you really like what he writes, then you might want to be like him in all respects just because he has this cachet, you know, for being Oxford and the list could go on and on. But we're right. Prestige bias moves people to unbelief. Well, it's not a truth conducive cognitive faculty any more than conformity is a truth conducive cognitive faculty. Um, so I try to look at some things that might explain why – this is why I used to explain why in the academy you might find a hiring bias. Uh, places won't hire people if they know, know they're Christians or conservative, like um, politically conservative. Um, really hard if you're politically conservative to get a job at a secular university. Um, if you voted for Trump and you told people, it's a like kiss of death. Uh, you would never get a job. Uh, in a secular uh, university. Yeah, so yeah. anyway, hiring bias is a factor. There are all sorts of biases for why. And that's why, why would people, at, so I'm, I'm looking at why people at universities who have higher IQ, way higher IQs on average, uh, why you might find unbelief there. And it doesn't mean that they, it's because they looked at arguments and formed their belief that there is no God. It, it just means it could mean all sorts of things that have nothing to do with argument or or evidence. Right. Or when they did see arguments, it's like, oh, of course, that makes sense. Yeah. And it's, I mean, your own survival is at stake. It's like you want to, you got a PhD and you want to get a job at university. You want to fit in. So Yeah, that's the only way to fit in. That um, That's conformity bias. And then once right. you have this belief, when you look, as you point out, once you have a belief... Uh, when you look at arguments, it colors how you look at an argument. And um, 
we we reason after we we typically reason after we form a belief and then our reason justifies what we already believe on some other grounds we we rationalize what we believe and it's not right. just religious believers everybody does this we know this everybody does this Okay, and that ties into um, you did a whole chapter about googling God. Yeah. So, how does Google as a search engine, and not the best search engine, how does that relate to our brain and our beliefs? Yeah, I asked people to look up. Uh, I don't know if I did in the book, but I asked them to look up plow, for example. Uh, you search one time on Google, and the next time you go on Facebook, there'll be advertisements for plows. And my point is that Google knows already probably way more about you than you know or about me than I know. And uh, what Google does is it it filters results that uh, conform to what I already believe. So if I look up Dawkins, uh, I'm going to get atheist sites. It won't work now because I've looked up all sorts of other things in the meantime. So I might get if I if I look up Dawkins, I might get get fundamentalist Christians sermons against Dawkins. That might be what I get. But if an atheist friend looks up Dawkins, Google knows who he is and he's going to get um, atheist defenses of Dawkins. And so Google works the way our minds work. Actually, our minds like to find like to get reality to conform to the way to things we already believe about it. That's what our mind the way our minds work. So if you Google God, it depends if you're Richard Dawkins or if you're me. You're going to get results, and the results are going to make you feel good, to make to make me feel good, but also make him feel good, even though mine are going to be pro-God results and his are going to be anti-God results. And we have to know that our minds are, um, are working that way. And then here's this trick that our minds play on us, and that is to get us to think that they're not working that way that I somehow stand above. I have a mind that stands above this body at this time with these cultural influences that I, I'm like a, a God that stands above and I, I look all over and I can see my beliefs are rational, but I can see everyone who disagrees with me is irrational. And I, I use this chapter to get people to be more humble about their beliefs on both sides. Like I, uh, I think the thing, um, if I could encourage people to be humble with respect to their intellects, there's, I think our spiritual beliefs can be sources of pride and arrogance, and that's bad. Um, hmm. Anything that gets us to look down on someone else, um, I think is bad. I think it's it's pride. It's a it's pride in a in a certain kind of intellectual form, and um, and it's bad, and and we need to resist it. So I. I'm not trying to make everybody a skeptic, but there are good re there are reasons why people are. Um, but I am trying to get people to be more intellectually humble. Christian, so, atheist, everybody, and we and honestly, I actually I had lunch with Richard Dawkins once, and he wasn't like his public persona, and I learned a lot from him. But if I think he's this. The crappy atheist who and you know blah 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 fill in the blanks, and I look down on him and feel myself superior. Then then I'm not in a position where I can learn from this other human being, someone created in God's image, and um, it, who I think is mistaken. But I don't think he's crazy, or I shouldn't think he's crazy or a monster. Um, I should think he's a fellow truth seeker, and I've got things to listen to learn from him. So anyway, it was a very interesting lunch. And what shocked me was how much he listened to me. Hmm. Uh, he was way more attentive to me than I expected. Uh, and I think he was because I think he I think he decided maybe I wasn't an idiot and maybe there was something he could learn here. So um, I don't know that he treats everybody that way, but I think we should treat everybody that way. We should treat everyone the way that we want to be treated. It's a sort of golden rule of dialogue. I should listen to you the way... Uh, I want you to listen to me. And um, we're often, religious believers are often not very good listeners or really good speakers, but not such good listeners. All right. 
Good stuff. And in finally, in closing, how do you um, your career in apologetics? You've done some work in apologetics. How does that tie in with this work? Because this seems very apologetically oriented too, in some ways. Um, it's uh, well. I my main view of apologetics is that um, there are all sorts of reasons people believe in God, and um, what I do is look at what are called defeaters of belief in God. So I look at when some atheist says belief in God is irrational because that really bothers me. But I, I look at it this way. Are you saying my grandmother's irrational? And uh, and then it, when you put it like that, it just doesn't seem right. It's one thing to sort of say it in the abstract that uh, for an atheist to say an unbeliever is irrational, but Really, are you going to say it to my face that I that I've done? You think I've done something wrong with what? What did I do wrong anyway? I so then I I think um, well, that's just being a bully, an intellectual bully. And um, when someone says that, that's when I say, "All right, I'm going to look into why I think they're not right." And my grandmother doesn't need to look into this. But there are lots of freshmen in college that face bullies, and uh, so I write it down. So if they want to see, there are resources that give people responses to those people. Um, sadly, most of them have not read my book, uh, but lots of them read Dawkins' books. And at any rate, there's something out there um, for someone to see. And this is when some intellectual bully says, "You, you, you're a, you're irrational, you silly theist." And or you're crazy or you're whatever they say. There are all sorts of things they say. And uh, and and I take it that's where I get my marching orders. All right. You said that. Now I'm going to show why that isn't true. OK. All righty. Well, lots of good material there. So, um, uh, Dr. Clark, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm Dennis Metzler. You've been listening to The Charge. Um, We've been looking at God and the Brain and Belief and Rationality. So uh, Dr. Clark's book is God and the Brain, the Rationality of Belief. Follow the link below. Uh, Dr. Clark, thanks for being with us. My pleasure, Dennis. Thanks for having me. All right. Peace to everyone.